You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here at Holmes Avenue. Thank you guys for worshiping with us this morning. I do want to make a note that this is the time where you are able to consider giving. You can give in a variety of ways. You can see listed here on the screen. I want to encourage you to give and support the mission of not only Holmes Avenue, but of the Southern Baptist Convention as a whole. A portion of what you give goes out to support full-time missionaries around the world, support church plants here in North America. We are a small part of what God is doing around the world. And so I want to encourage you to give and give generously to support not just our mission, but the mission of God here on his planet. Well, today we are going to be beginning one of our new series titled I Am. We've got a four-week series looking at some of the I Am statements of Jesus as we build up to Easter. And as we look at this, I've titled today, I Am the Good Shepherd, uh, quite originally, because that is actually what we're looking at, that passage of Jesus in the book of John. But as we begin to look at this, you may be asking, why are we considering the I Am statements of Jesus? What does this have to do with Easter? What does this have to do with me? Well, coincidentally, one of the questions that I get every so often from college students is this question of, how do I know he or she is the one? How do I know that I'm going to find the right person to marry? How do I know this person might be the right person to marry? You know, as I've gone through the years of working with students and spending time with them at Charleston Southern, this question comes up so often, and there's a variety of things that you're looking for, right? There's certain things you're looking for in your spouse. There's certain things that you hope and dream of. There's all these things that you've got put together. And simply put, you know, the, the way that I always answer this question for them is, ultimately, you want to find someone who loves God, who loves you, and leads you to be a better version of yourself, Simply put, if you're looking for someone in marriage, like you, you, could, you would be hard-pressed to find anything other than that. And inevitably, the question comes up, well, how do I know that this person, how do I know that this is the person who's going to lead me in those areas? And the answer that I've always been able to provide is, well, you don't truly know. I mean, you, you get to know them as well as you can, and you get to spend time with them and build a relationship, but you don't predict a future. You don't know how things play out. What you're doing is you're making a judgment call using the wisdom that God's given you, the wisdom of those around you saying, this is who they are, this is where they've led me, and this is where this may go. Simply put, the goal of this time of, of, of interaction and relationship is to simply recognize and get to know who are they. Is this the type of person that I want to spend the rest of my life with? Your goal is to truly just know someone well enough to say yes or no to that simple proposition. Well, you might be curious. That's great advice, Walter. But what does that have to do with Jesus and Easter? Well, this Easter series that we're beginning, the I Am series, is looking at this basic idea of who is Jesus. These I am statements from Jesus aren't just pithy phrases. They're not just cute things that Jesus said. These are declarations to the world of who he is. When he uses the phrase I am, he is borrowing from the Old Testament usage of God. When he said I am, he's making a proclamation that I am God and this is who I am. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Christ... Or maybe you don't even know who this Jesus is. 
We're all looking at the same basic question of who is Jesus and what is he doing in his world? What is it that he's doing in our lives? And what better way to begin to wrestle with those questions, to answer those questions, than to take a look at who he is and wrestle with what he's doing. And so over the next four weeks, including today, we will look at these I am statements and we'll get a a glimpse of who Jesus is and what it is that he is doing in our world. What's he doing in our lives? And so as we enter into this section of scripture, we're in John chapter 10 verses 1 through 18 today. It's a rather lengthy passage, so I want to ask you to stand as we read it. But as we look at this, we're going to get a very deep glimpse of who Jesus is and what he's doing in our world today. Our first point, if you're taking notes, is this, that he is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. Look with me beginning in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers." This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Well, perhaps you're like the listeners there. You're not quite sure what Jesus is saying to you right now. You've heard that he's a shepherd and you have this passage beginning with some language talking about sheep and what happens there. And I want to give you, as we look at this, some insight into what's being talked about here. But I want to draw your attention to a book that I highly recommend for you to go grab. This is a book book on Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. And this is Philip Keller. He's a pastor and coincidentally a shepherd who writes about Psalm 23 from the lens of being a shepherd. He explains what this means and the work of that. And I'm drawing from some of that to help understand what we're looking at here in this idea of sheep and shepherds. Now, as we begin here in this passage, though, I want to focus in on what's happening here. Jesus starts this passage offering some guidance for the listeners, for us, on who he is. He starts by referring to this thing called the sheepfold. And no, it's not origami with sheep or anything weird like that. No, this idea of the sheepfold is a fenced-in area where you're going to keep your sheep overnight. If you're out in the field or out in your pasture, this may be something you've built up with some uh, rock or brick around the, around the perimeter to guard the sheep. Here in town that Jesus is in, he's referring to the sheepfold in the middle of the town. It's this fenced-in area with fence around three sides that abuts up to a building that's got a guard post in it. There's someone on guard, whether it's one of the shepherds or someone else on guard throughout the night. This is a communal area, so multiple groups of sheep are being brought here. The town is pooling its resources to guard their flocks overnight. And so this area where Jesus is referring to is a place that would have been very common for our people in Israel to know. They would have lived this, they understood this, they walked through this. And they hear Jesus' words and they go, I still don't understand what he's talking about. See, he's giving some mixed metaphors here, some mixed statements, because he's starting with a statement of the sheepfold and how a true shepherd is going to be the one who goes in the front door. 
See, the sheepfold, as I've already said, is going to be guarded at night. And the guard's only going to let who in? Those that have a reason to go in. Those that have sheep in there. We know that throughout history, people have tried to steal and take that which is not theirs. And Jesus uses that metaphor to say, there's going to be some who are going to try to climb in to sneak over the fence, but they are not shepherds. They're enemies. Their very behavior of trying to sneak in around the back shows that they don't belong to the sheep nor the shepherds. The only people who will come in through this door is going to be who? Those that belong here, the shepherds or the sheep. See, he's illustrating that the sheep are safe with the shepherds. I think the key to understanding this section of Scripture, beyond knowing a little bit about shepherding, is verse 3 here. Look back at verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Maybe you're listening to this and... and you hear this and you think, well, Jesus has given us a lot to understand about shepherding, but what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my life? What does this have to do with what Jesus is doing in this world? Well, I think he's painting this picture of familiarity and of intimacy. Think about this, right? The shepherd must know his sheep. He knows his sheep. He calls out to them by name sometimes. Maybe he just has identifying features he uses. Hey, long ears over here. Come on, boy. Hey, grumpy. Come on. Move on, gal. He calls them by name. He knows them. He even knows them down to their little personality ticks. Don't you bite me. I know what that means. You need to come over here. He knows that they like things like belly rubs and sunny days. He knows that they enjoy this field more so than others because they always eat more here. He knows his sheep in a way that no one else does or can. Likewise, the sheep know him. He's the main voice they hear on a daily basis. Every day, it's the one calling out to him. You there, long ears, grumpy, here, now. When he calls, they answer. They follow him because they know him and they trust him. You see, it's painting a picture of intimacy. Compare this to the example of a stranger coming up to them, right? They flee from the stranger because they do not know the stranger. There are even stories that we see of sheep who have been sold and they refuse to go with their new owner. Why? Because the new owner's voice is not the same as the one they spent their entire life with. If you've ever been around sheep, sometimes you have to arm wrestle them around because they're stubborn, because they are very set in their ways of, this is the one person I listen to and I can't go with anyone else. Honestly, sheep get a bad rap when you start looking at the creatures they are. They're simple creatures. They're sometimes not very bright. They're sometimes not very smart. They're not very uh, athletic creatures, right? You know, a sheep, if it falls on a side, could literally die just from lying on the side. I mean, they can't even get themselves up. Like, this is not really painting a picture of who we want to be. We don't want to be like sheep. Yet, there's a reason that Jesus used the example of sheep. There's wisdom here that Jesus is trying to display to us. This is all ultimately building a picture together of who Jesus is. See, he is our shepherd who knows us and who cares for us. 
He's not some stranger who's calling out to us from the wilderness. He's not someone who doesn't know who we are. He's not someone who's never come in contact with us. No, he is a God who knows his people intimately. His voice is not one of anger or wrath or hatred. His voice is not one of condemnation. No, his voice is one of comfort and of grace, of mercy and compassion. You see, no matter where you are in your life, no matter what you've done, no matter where you think you're going, Jesus offers an invitation to all of us to be a part of his flock. Jesus offers an invitation to all of us to be a part of his flock. If we respond to this call, then we can receive rest and care from him. We can take our hurt, our pain, our sorrows, our difficulty, and we can put it before him. And like the good shepherd that he is, he will bear the weight of those difficulties. He will endure the price of hardships and sufferings for whose sake? For our sake. If we follow him, we can receive the loving care of the shepherd. You see, as Jesus is using this illustration, the people together that are there, they, they say they don't really understand, but the truth is the reason they don't understand is because they're unwilling to view themselves as sheep who are helpless and in distress. I've already said sheep are not very smart creatures. They're not athletic. If you're picking an animal to be in the wilderness, none of us are picking sheep. We're going to pick something like a tiger or a lion. But the truth is, within our lives, if we were truly honest with one another, we're sheep. We get stuck sometimes and we can't figure out a way out. Sometimes we're not the smartest. We make poor choices. Sometimes we need a helping hand. You see, Jesus uses this example not only to connect to the people in a way that they should understand theoretically about sheep and shepherds, but to show them the humility that is the human experience. You and I cannot fix the problems of this life by ourselves, can we? You and I cannot resolve the difficulties of this world alone. You and I cannot fix the mess that we've made of our lives by ourselves. We need someone, coincidentally, who's like a shepherd to come in, to put us right side up, to knock the bugs away from our eyes, to point us to the nice patch of grass that we get to linger in and eat, and to rub us on our head and say, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. I believe the reason that they didn't want to understand this, they strove to say they didn't understand this because they had a higher view of themselves than they should have. And so for you and I, I would ask this question, how do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as someone who has it all together, someone who has it all figured out in this world, who doesn't need a Savior, or are you someone who's humble enough to say, I desperately need someone to come in and to help keep this thing I call life together? One puts yourself in a position of honor and glory. The other puts Jesus in a position of honor and glory. 
See, this is why Jesus uses this illustration to show us, to lead us into humility and gentleness, recognizing that he is God and we are not. Even as he works through this picture of being a shepherd, and it's a strong illustration of the way he walks with us, he guides us, he directs us, we have to recognize that a shepherd doesn't just care for us. He also fights to protect us. You see, in the next few verses, we're going to see that Jesus, he is our protector. Look with me at verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is good news here. See, Jesus begins to change his illustration just a little bit here for us. And he starts speaking about a a door here. And I can only imagine as Jesus is standing here with the people and he's speaking about sheep and shepherds and the sheepfold, that he just points back to this door of the sheepfold, right? This door that is guarded by someone, a shepherd or someone else, this door that is protected, that only has access to certain people who can come through. And ultimately, as he's referring to this, he's giving us an example of how we're to enter into the kingdom of God. You see, his main thrust here is that ultimately the only way we become a part of God's family is through him. Now, this isn't an original statement. This is one that you've perhaps, if you've been around the church, you've heard this before. We can only get to heaven if we become a part of the flock, if we're a faithful sheep. That is, if Jesus calls us his and we call him ours. There are no other ways to get into this flock. There are no other ways to enter into the flock, the family of God, but through Jesus Christ. You can't pay enough. You can't give enough. You can't be good enough. There is absolutely nothing that you and I can do that would give us access to the family of God. It has been said by saints of the times past that the only thing we contributed to our salvation was the sin that made it necessary for us to be redeemed. So if you want to ask the question of how can I get into heaven, you and I cannot when left to our own devices. The only path for us with unrepentant sin, with sin that has not been forgiven by the Lord Jesus, is hell and separation from God. Now this isn't to bring down a fire and brimstone sermon. This is ultimately addressing the biblical reality that we either choose Jesus and we receive forgiveness of our sins and we follow him for the rest of our days, or we choose to relish in our sin We reject his free gift of grace. We live our lives as we desire and we spend eternity separated from him. This is just the biblical reality as Jesus is speaking. There's one way into the flock, into the family of God, and that is through him. The only way that we can become good enough to enter into the kingdom of God is through Jesus himself. 
Salvation alone from Jesus is the only way we're going to be a part of this family. As we look at this, Jesus recognizes there are going to be some people who think they can skirt the system. There are going to be some who think they can get into this club, this family, without doing the required work. There's going to be some who believe that no matter what we say, that they are going to somehow make it in by the skin of their teeth. Jesus refers to these people as thieves, as robbers. He refers to the great thief that is the one called Satan. See, he compares himself here to Satan himself, this great thief. And he says ultimately that when Satan has come, he has come to do what? To steal, to kill, to destroy. He has come to bring death. That's why he brings these lies of you're good enough. You've done enough. That if you are righteous enough, you can do this yourself. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Compare that to Jesus who has come to bring what? Life. Not just life, but life in abundance. See, Jesus offers protection for us from the schemes of Satan against us in this life. He's saying there's going to be some people who are trying to climb over the fence to get in the back door, but there is no back door. They might climb over the fence. They might mingle with the sheep, but guess what? When I call out to them, they will not respond to my voice. They do not know me, and I do not know them. You've probably already figured this out, but I want to make it plain as day, as clear as I can possibly make it. Jesus is the only one who is going to bring salvation, peace, and rest to us. He's the only one. You know, I referenced Psalm 23 earlier, and I, I encourage you to go back and look at that this week as you're considering Jesus being a shepherd, being our protector. Take a look back at Psalm 23. Everything that is pictured there, this beautiful rest, this beautiful green meadow, this table that he sets before us, all these good things that he establishes come from him. He is the only one who's going to bring us salvation, peace, and rest. And maybe you're here and you have trusted in Jesus and you're saying yes and amen. But do you practically, on a daily basis, live like that's true? You see, you and I often put things in place of Jesus to try to bring rest and peace to us in this life. See, we have these things that can perhaps best be called functional idols in our lives. These are things that offer some temporary satisfaction to us, yet they do not offer sustaining hope, peace, and rest. If I just get this promotion, I'm going to be good. I'll have enough money. I can then give to the church. If I get this promotion, I'm going to have enough time and I can now serve. If I do this, then I can finally spend time with my family because I finally provided for them. And what happens in every one of those situations? You long for more. You can put whatever you want in this proposition, but whatever idol you put in there, if you put anything but Jesus, 
It's going to leave you needing more to satisfy it. It's going to leave you longing for something. And whether you're here as a Christ follower or not, what I know in our lives is true. As John Calvin said, the heart is an idol factory. We will find something to worship. You can put us in a blank room with nothing in there and we will start talking to something. That is just who we are. We have a desire to know the divine, to be filled and satisfied by something that is not of this world. See, Jesus is telling us that he wants to give us life and life in abundance. Ultimately, what he's not talking about is prosperity here on earth, though you may end up wealthy. He's not talking about good health, though you may have good health. Ultimately, what Jesus is pointing to is that he has come to bring freedom to his people. He has come to bring freedom from bondage of sin and slavery. He has come to bring freedom from these idols that we use to prop up our lives. He has come to set his people free. I don't know if you've ever been to the Statue of Liberty. Maybe raise your hand if you've ever been there. I don't know if any of you have seen it in person. You know, a lot of people think when they go to see the Statue of Liberty that it's just this kind of motionless thing sitting out in the middle of the harbor in New York. But the, the designers, when they created it, actually put some design elements in there to imply motion. What I mean by that is that normally we just think of it as just like this, right? But when you actually get to the Statue of Liberty, you see that at the bottom of the statue upon its pedestal, the robe doesn't go all the way down. Do you actually see legs, feet, with one foot stepping forward. And you see broken chains on the pedestal. You see, the statue was designed to commemorate the ending of slavery in the United States. It was designed to display freedom from that which holds us captive. What better picture of freedom to be found than through Jesus? Just like the Statue of Liberty, Jesus came not to keep us in our same place, but to set us free from the things that would hold us to this world. The truth is, is that Jesus is not just here as a shepherd and a protector. He is those things. He's working those things together. But in this process of setting us free, he shows us that ultimately he is faithful to his people. Look with me at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He is faithful to his people. We, we've seen this picture of the shepherd and the sheep and the willingness to protect them. We're not going to spend a ton of time there, but there are a few new wrinkles in this illustration he offers here. First, we've got this hired hand making an appearance. Just somewhere in this parable, Jesus is giving us this hired hand. And this is someone who's just here for a paycheck. 
He's not interested in long-term care and flourishing of the flock. He's just here. And when danger comes in, he's out of here, right? Yes, I could stand here and try to fight off a wolf. And if you've never seen a wolf, like think like, you know, German shepherd size, but add a few inches and a couple of pounds, like it's big, right? I could try to fight off this wolf, but you know what? He might eat me instead. So he can eat a sheep and I'll live and see another day, right? Like I'll get a paycheck again. When someone's not really invested, they leave when things get hard. I mean, that's true, right? If you've ever worked a job, right, where you have been in there and you and your coworkers are thinking, is this really worth all the stress and difficulty? And the next morning, someone doesn't show up to work and you go, yep, I get it. I understand. I see it. Wish I was there too. We've had those type of jobs. We've lived in those realities. When things get hard, if you're not invested, you leave. Compare this to Jesus. Look at how Jesus describes himself in comparison to this hired hand. He's not really afraid of this wolf, but he's not willing to abandon his sheep just because there's a little craziness that's happening, right? This wolf has crept up to the side of the sheepfold and there's a little craziness. The sheep are going crazy. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen. There's a little chaos going on, but what happens? Does Jesus run away from the chaos? No, he steps into it. He's not going anywhere. He's going to protect his flock even to the point of death. Why? Because they're his. Because they are his. This is the God who is not only willing to step into these positions of life and death, not only willing to step into the heart, but this is the God who calls them to himself. He gives them green pastures to lie down in. He watches over them. He sets this table before them. He protects them from their enemies. I mean, I'm quoting to you Psalm 23 right here. Jesus is putting that in action. This is what faithfulness looks like. Hanging in there in times of difficulty and distress. If we would be honest with one another, if we could feel comfortable enough to be honest with one another here today, we might say that even in the best of times, we're a little bit of a mess, right? Even in the best of times, we don't have it all together. We think those things like, if you really knew who I was, you wouldn't want to hang out with me. If you saw what I did here, there, you might think you have lost your ever-loving mind. I mean, simply put, if we're honest, even on our best day, things are kind of like held together with duct tape and a prayer. Knowing that, we honestly wouldn't blame Jesus if he rolled his eyes at us and just stopped putting up with our issues, right? I mean, sometimes I really do think we have this picture, like we come to Jesus again, like, Lord... I, I, I don't know how many times I've come to you about this and he's just out there rolling his eyes going, kid, when are you ever going to get it right? When are you going to stop coming to me about this? That's the picture we have. He's a parent who's had one too many times of someone doing something. Yet that's not what Jesus is displaying here. What is he displaying? Yeah, this might be the hundredth time you've called me about this, but that's okay. I'll be here till you get it right. This might be the problem you've dealt with for a hundred years, but you know what? 
I've been with you for a hundred years and I'll be with you a hundred more if I have to. You know what? You're what we would call the hot mess express. But guess what? You're still mine and I'm still here no matter what. You see, the truth is what Jesus has displayed for us is that he never stops loving us. He never stops caring for us. He never stops walking with us. Why? Because he is faithful to his people. Bob Thune writes that because Jesus loves us, he is more committed to us changing than even we are. What this means is that Jesus loves us enough that through the mess and difficulty, through the hardship, he's going to be here because he is more committed to seeing his work be done in our lives than even we are. We would have quit because it's hard by now, but what does Jesus do? No, baby. A few more steps. A few more minutes. A few more days and you will be okay. This is a God who is faithful to his people, even to the point of death. Even when we go astray, he says, I will make sure you come back to the flock. This ultimately takes us to our last point, that he is the sacrificial lamb. He is the sacrificial lamb. Look with me at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. See, Jesus tells us here very clearly that not only will he lay down his lives for us, his life for us, but he's gathering a family together. He tells us here that there are sheep in this moment that are not of his fold. See, he's speaking to a Jewish group of people who are thinking of God only has something to do with the Jews. And if you're going to become a part of this family, you must become a Jew. And what Jesus is saying that no. There is this group of people called the Gentiles. That's everyone else that's not a Jewish person. That's you and I, unless you have some Jewish experience or background, right? We are not ethnically Jewish. Yet God himself, the one who is using the I am statement, I am the good shepherd, I am God, come to this world in flesh. Those people over there that look nothing like the Jewish people, that have nothing to do with the Jewish people, I'm going to graft them into this family. They are going to be my children just as you are my children. He's saying that God's people is going to be made up of people of every tribe, every nation, every tongue. That from around the world there will be people who have been brought together by what thing that unites them? Jesus. Jesus. So he's going to unite this group of very different people together into one family. Ultimately, he's the only one that can call us together. I mean, in this world today, we are more divided than we've ever been. It doesn't take but a few minutes of watching the news or getting on social media to be aware of that. We're splitting into ever smaller circles of people. 
Because what the culture tells us is that if you don't agree with me, then you are a bigot and I must stay away from you. And I have to find my circle of people that believe exactly as I believe. And wouldn't you know it, finding a group of people that believes exactly like I believe gets harder and harder. Eventually, we're going to fracture completely and we won't be able to associate with anyone. Yet Jesus, in the midst of that fracturing of the culture, the fracturing of the world, brings us together. I look around this room, I see people of different ages, different economic status, different jobs, different places they live, yet we've come together around what? Around Jesus. We're not here because we're best friends with the person sitting beside us. We're here because Jesus has united us and brought us together into his family so that we might honor and glorify him. We were all once wanderers, but Jesus made us a part of this family. We were all once sheep who have been led astray, who have gone astray, and the shepherd brought us home. See, Jesus is trying to foreshadow the work that he's going to do. Remember, this is before the cross. This is before he is going to go to pay for the weight of our sins and death upon the cross. And he's foreshadowing the work that's going to occur there. He's telling everybody, hey, one day when I go to this cross and when I die this gruesome death, don't be surprised because that was always a part of the plan. We know what he's going to do because we've heard this message of the resurrection. We know we trusted Jesus when he went to that cross, didn't just die for our sins and go to decay in a cave. No, he stepped out of that tomb three days later, fully flesh, showing he has power over life and death. This wasn't a zombie coming out. This was a man coming out who lived and spoke to people. See, this passage is showing that Jesus is trying to make clear to his people that when I die, when I go to this cross, no one's taking my life from me. I'm giving it up. I'm laying it down on your behalf. I'm willingly laying it down so that you may have life, not just in abundance, but eternally. You see, he does this on the authority of the Father. And he's proclaiming that his purpose here is to seek and save the lost. He does all that he does so that we might come into the flock. You see, Jesus is proclaiming that he's going to bear the weight of our sins through his sacrifice upon the cross. He will give up his life for you and for I so that we might be a part of his flock. I want to leave you with one question. We prepare to go to the Lord in prayer and to sing one final worship song. Are we living our lives in the abundance that Jesus gives us? Are we resting in him? Are we trusting in him? Or are we trying to jump the fence, hoping that we can be counted his? Hoping that whatever we've put in place of him will hold it together until that final day. I don't know where you're at in your journey, but what I do know is that one of the most important questions, perhaps the most important question we can ask is, who is Jesus to us and what has he done in my life? And so today I would encourage you, I would ask you to consider what has Jesus done in your life? Have you trusted in him, receiving the free gift of mercy that he's given us? 
Or are you skirting the fence, hoping you can hop in and make it through by the skin of your teeth? Ultimately, the choice is yours, but my hope and prayer is that you would choose to trust in Jesus. If you have questions, things you want to discuss about who Jesus is and what he's done in my life, I'd love to share that with you afterwards. You can speak to me. I'll be right here. If you're online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash contact and we'll connect with you from there. If I might, could I pray for you as our worship team comes forward? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are thankful for this fact that you are our shepherd. Not just the fact that you're a shepherd, but you are the good shepherd. You care for your people. You care for your flock. You love us. You protect us. You guide us. You direct us. You encourage us. I mean, there are so many things we could put in there to describe your relationship with us. But this can all be summed up by this statement that you are faithful to your people. Lord, that you came to bear the weight of sin and shame. You knew this is where your, your path, your story would take us. You knew that you were going to die a death that you didn't deserve. You knew you were going to bear the weight of sin and shame upon our behalf. Yet you came willingly. Yet you came and lived the perfect life that we could not. You were the spotless, perfect lamb, the scapegoat as it was to pay for the debt of our sin and shame. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for this free gift of grace that we have to look upon, to treasure, to hold tightly. Lord, it is my prayer that for everyone who is here, who is online or in person, Lord, they would trust in you. They would look upon your grace and mercy and cry out for forgiveness, for hope, for rest and peace, Lord. They would exchange their idols for you, Lord, that they would have this treasure in their heart because you dwell inside them. Lord, allow the Spirit to change our hearts and minds to be receptive to you, to your word. I pray that you would bless us in this time and lead us to worship you, not only in spirit and truth, but in song as we sing together with the saints. Lord, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.